We are continuing this morning in our series through the book of Daniel, this Living Faithfully in a Beastly Age series that we've spent several weeks on. And our reading this morning comes from Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel chapter 5 is among the most vividly bizarre chapters in the Bible. From a young age, I can remember this story sticking with me, ingrained in my mind, the picture of, at least in my mind's eye, this enormous hand floating in space, engraving in this wall these mysterious words. It captures the imagination. It's bizarre. We'll get to those more obviously bizarre elements a little bit later on, but I want to begin our time this morning with a more subtle but no no less foreign aspect of this story of Belshazzar's feast. Something that might not immediately capture our attention in the same way as that disembodied, free-floating hand, but I think is key to understanding, in understanding, how God might be speaking to us through this passage today. I want to focus on this very idea, to begin, of sacred objects. That's a concept that might be a little foreign to our lives, to our lived experience. But the inciting event in Daniel chapter 5 is Belshazzar's use or misuse of these particular vessels or utensils from Israel's temple, the golden goblets. We might say Belshazzar misuses the fine china, and that results in this dramatic response and his swift death. For most of us, I suspect that strikes us as a little odd. Even if we have this limited sense of certain physical objects or spaces that hold special meaning or significance, that are are sacred in some way, the idea that these things would be as serious as God treats them here might feel a little off, perhaps out of proportion. We don't have the same sense of solemnity around the sacred that seems to be apparent in this passage. Even as a liturgical church, this is pretty serious stuff. The other week, while we were unpacking for the sunrise services, I actually dropped just a few inches one of the chalices that we use for communion, and it cracked a little bit, a hairline fracture. I'm happy to to report that I remain canonically in good standing and that no death sentence hangs over me. But what's going on here, we might say? If you spend enough time in churches like ours, among Christians' circles, you may have heard or will hear that famous and beautiful quote by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. It's poetic, beautiful. It's the basis in some ways of what we might call a sacramental worldview. That creation, the world around us, are infused with God's grace and presence and can be means of grace. Most of us, frankly, don't really believe that. We don't live very easily as though it is true. Balshazar in Daniel 5 certainly doesn't believe it with regard to these vessels, these utensils. That these dishes, which had been used in the temple of Israel's God, are in his possession, in the possession of the Babylonians, demonstrates, in fact, for him that they're not special. They're not sacred. They hold no significance or power beyond any meaning he or others might invest in them. They, for him, are actually symbols, it seems, of Babylonian dominance and nothing more. For him, we might say, they are thoroughly disenchanted. 
Living when we do and as we do means that we live in a disenchanted world, at least from our perspective. There are all kinds of reasons for that related to the history of ideas, modernism, advancement in science. We can't get into all of them this morning, though I'd love to sound as smart as possible. But one of the effects of this disenchantment is that we can come to see the world, creation around us, as simply raw material, stuff available for our use, without any significance, without any connection to something transcendent beyond what we might impose upon the material world. In a way, nothing for us is sacred. There's a fitness place in my neighborhood, part of this popular Austin chain. And a few months back, must have been before the pandemic, I noticed they had this inspirational slogan up, part of kind of encouraging people to sign up. And the slogan was, make your body the sexiest outfit you'll ever own. This is an effective phrase. It's stuck in my brain, right alongside that invisible hand from Daniel 5. But there's something kind of reductive about that, right? Your body is an outfit made available by the alterations you might make, subject to your manipulations. It's clothing. It's machinery, even. There's something lacking in terms of its sacred perspective of the body. It lacks meaning in and of itself. Perhaps it even lacks dignity. This is a temptation of the disenchanted world we live in. The reduction of the world that God has made that is sacred because of his love and care, that is infused with his grace, intended for his purposes, his glory, reduced to simple raw material, lacking in meaning or significance beyond what we might impress upon it. Utensils to be used at our disposal, like Balsazar does with the temple instruments here. Related to this reduction, this temptation, is what I'm calling the presumption of powerlessness. God is removed from our conception, or at the very least, his will and his intention are distant, irrelevant, of no consequence to us. God as creator and sustainer of the world in this view is one way or another removed. In earlier chapters of Daniel, the, the vessels that are taken from Israel's temple by Nebuchadnezzar who's named as Belshazzar's father here, which that seems to be this kind of creative linking of the two kings, are signs that the God of Israel has allowed Babylon to serve as this vehicle of judgment. God's given them the power to defeat and plunder Israel. He's given it himself. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar had to come to learn, as we saw last week in Daniel chapter 4. And it's something that Belshazzar does not know here this morning. He takes the exact wrong lesson from these temple goods being in his possession. He presumes the powerlessness of Israel's God. Yahweh, in his mind, is defeated, removed, with a will that is of no consequence. So in his own mind, he's free to treat what God has made, what God has given, as his own plaything. In the place where we find ourselves, with this temptation toward this reduced vision of creation around us, with God perhaps even removed, distant, or irrelevant, a kind of vacuum is created. A vacuum where God once took the space up. What fills that vacuum? Whose will, 
whose desire, whose purposes? Very often, it's we who fill that vacuum. Our wills, our desires become most important, become the driving force. This is precisely what Daniel sees at work in the king. It's not in the portion that we heard just read, but in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Daniel calls out names in Balthazar that he has not humbled himself, but rather he set himself up against the Lord of heaven, and he's failed to honor the God who holds in his hand the king's life and ways. With the presumption of God's powerlessness, with that vacuum, the king has set himself up as God in replacement. This is the kind of way it works with every tin pot dictator or petty tyrant, right? They assume this godlike position, godlike power. They become willing then to violate the dignity of other image bearers. There's nothing sacred. They become willing to impose their own broken and sinful will without restraint upon the world. History is replete with examples. I'm sure you can think of many. The 20th century's tally of despotic regimes, often tied to this kind of material worldview, is a long one. And part of the hope of Daniel chapter 5 is that the powers in the world every one of them prone to idolatry, are subject to the sovereign power of God. This is something we've seen consistently through the book, that God sets the beginning and ending of these powers. He stands over them as judge, over even the most seemingly entrenched authorities. That is very good news. The corrupt powers of this world answer to another greater and more just king. But if we leave the message of Daniel 5 there, I think we may miss what it speaks to us. Because we suffer the same temptation as Belshazzar here. We are, are prone to the same idolatries as every would-be tyrant. As we talk about living faithfully in beastly times, it is essential that we recognize this reality. Most of us share more in common with Belshazzar than we might like to admit. At the very least, the same failures of humility, the same setting ourselves up over and against God and his will, the same embrace of idolatry mark out our lives. In less extravagant and obvious ways, perhaps, but in the everyday indulgences, the petty addictions, the self-rule of expressive individualism in our lives, leading to daily denials of honor to God in our ordinary sinfulness, the misuse of our lives. In his masterpiece, The Death of Ivan Illich, Leo Tolstoy captures something of this. The life Ivan, in the book, misuses is not spent in debauchery or dramatic betrayals. There's no grand oppression or injustice he participates in. His life is, as Tolstoy writes, most simple and most ordinary and therefore most terrible. It's a default life in a fallen world and artificial in some profound way. His life in the book is spent socially climbing, advancing a career. 
but he is untouched in any meaningful way by the world around him, by God's creation, people, by his own family members whom he holds in contempt in this secret way. And as the story unfolds, it's only in the process of dying, and in fact, at the moment of his death, that the character Ivan encounters something true and authentic. He meets the sacred. And Tolstoy, Tolstoy describes him in his dying breath, asking for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness for a misused life. In the passage this morning, we have this contrast between Balthazar and his misuse of what God has given and the figure of Daniel. Scholars have puzzled over Daniel's refusal of the gifts that the king is offering in verse 17 and then his reception of them later on in the chapter at the chapter's end. A number of reasons have been offered, but what scholars mostly surmise is that Daniel's refusal in verse 17 signals that he is using his gifts, his insight, his wisdom for the glory of God and not for personal gain. Where the king flippantly lays hold of these temple tools, Daniel seems to recognize the true, the gracious origin of what he's received, of his life. He uses what he's been given, his abilities, his gifts. He uses his life with a certain humility, with a posture of faithfulness toward God. He's rewarded for it, but his own will and personal gain are not the animating impulse of his life. And as such, he's able to faithfully stand and endure. Daniel embodies this alternative. He stands as this remarkable example. And we have need of such examples, inspiring saints who've faithfully gone before us. They, they make concrete what we aspire to. They, they make concrete what God has called us to. But the fact of the matter is, examples are not enough. We, like Ivan in Tolstoy's story, must meet the sacred. And if the message for us today from Daniel 5 is simply be more like Daniel, it is not enough. Rather, stealing from Jurassic Park, the message I think for us is that life, like life, the word of God finds a way. In our reading, the presence and word of God are made physically tangible in this human hand writing on the walls communicating the reality of God's sovereignty over the past, present, and future of Babylon, communicating in physical form the reality of this truer, greater, and more enduring kingdom. It is bizarre stuff, but not uniquely so. For in this way, Daniel 5 points us forward to Christ, to Jesus, the Word made flesh the word most clearly finding a way. Finding a way in a world of intractable powers and impenetrable self-rule. Making known and real God's truer and greater kingdom. Reminding the would-be tyrants of this world, great and small, of God's sovereignty and power over sin, evil, death, over our lives making clear and vivid God's sacred purposes.
Jesus is the word of God written out for all the world to see. To see the reality of God's presence, the reality of Jesus' kingship overall. To see that earth is and will be crammed with heaven. And part of us, like Belshazzar, is terrified at this word, terrified at this realization, the reality of a power greater than ourselves, the reality of one to whom we must give an answer and account for our lives, one against whose scales we are all found wanting. And the word made physically tangible in Daniel 5 is a word of stark judgment. Balsazar dies that very night. It's the end of the Babylonian Empire, this superpower. It's the day of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord playing out in real time in history. There's something that should give us pause there. But the word made flesh that is Christ is not a word of judgment alone. He comes not to condemn the world, but to save it to make a way for us, to free and lead us from the worship of ourselves, from the tyranny of our broken and sinful wills, to make us more. In conclusion, I think this is God's dual word for us from Daniel 5 today. There is a warning to humble ourselves, to live our lives aware of how our days are framed by God's power, God's sovereignty, to consider his purposes for us and for all that he has given. A warning. Yet also, the second thing in Christ is this gracious and hopeful invitation to draw near in faith, draw near knowing that you have failed in giving proper honor, that you have failed in the use of your life, Draw near weak and faltering. Come to him. Come to this table. Come to him, the word made flesh. Draw near to him who is here to save and not condemn. Meet Christ, the one who opens the way of faithfulness, even in a beastly age. Meet the sacred one who makes us and all things new. I'm going to pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for this passage from Daniel 5. We thank you that the Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of these words is present to us here and now and is faithful to convict us with regard to sin. Convict us, we ask, with regard to the the tyranny of self-rule, the ways that we have made ourselves the tyrants of our own lives and are such are so enslaved. Convict us, O Lord, and turn us by your Spirit to the hope we have in Jesus, the Word made flesh, the one come to set us free and to lead us in freedom, to lead us into the life that you've made us for. I pray now for everyone who's participating in this worship at home that your spirit would work in their hearts and minds, that they would hear and heed, be strengthened to respond to your gracious invitation this day. And they would have such an encounter with you even now, even in this moment, that they would walk more fully as your own today, tomorrow, and all days.
We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.